Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And boy, have we got a treat for you today. We are joined by our friend and our former producer on this very show, Alex Williams. Say hi, Alex. Reformed producer. Hi. <laughs> what's going on, man? Oh, you know, just hanging out. What's What's up with you? Well, you know, we're uh, we're just having a bonus episode in your honor. Is what's uh, going on here? <laughs> oh, geez, thanks. Yeah. Right before we got going, we were sitting around talking about Riddick movies for how long? I don't know. It was a while. I was mostly listening because I hadn't seen the movie in question or any <laughs> of the Riddick movies. No, you're here for a reason today, Alex. T- tell us about it. Oh, uh, uh, because of Ephemeral, I have a podcast called Ephemeral. Yeah, it's really good, folks. Yes, it is. Uh, it's, it's a very, very exciting podcast because it's uh, it's really unlike any podcast I've listened to before, uh, in, in terms of its subject matter, but also in terms of just the, like the high production qualities that you bring to it. Oh, well, thank you. You d- you guys did a very nice um, when you d- you did the trailer. You put the trailer out in your feed. Uh, I think when it first came out, and you did a very nice endorsement then too uh, about the audio quality, which I thought was very sweet. So thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the audio quality is wonderful, but but more but more important though is is the topic of dealing with uh, these ephemeral bits of media. Can you just uh, you know speak to everybody who might not be familiar with the, the show, who ha- they haven't checked it out, or maybe they didn't catch the the trailer drop? Uh, what are we talking about when we're talking about uh, ephemera? The way that um, Sarah Wasserman is the, uh, the material culture studies uh, a professor of material culture studies at the University of Delaware, the way that she sort of differentiates. Uh, what ephemera from other kinds of, you know, disposable things, junk, trash, is that ephemera takes some kind of curation. Someone has to do some active saving mm-hmm. for it to uh, to continue to exist. Something like Winnebago Man. Are you familiar with Winnebago Man? <laughs> of course. Well, I listened to your episode. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, where you deal with Winnebago Man. Yeah, he's the guy who is, there are outtakes of him trying to record a TV commercial for Winnebago's. Right. Is it a dealership or a new model or something? I think it's a dealership. It's like the 80s, Mm -hmm. VHS. The guy's name is Jack Rebney. Mm -hmm. And he's just getting so frustrated on this day shoot. He's complaining about how hot it is. And he's just swearing continuously, just Mm -hmm. F this, S and everything. And uh, I guess he really pissed off the crew because they cut <laughs> together this video of him, uh, you know, all of the worst moments, I guess, in this sort of uh, compilation. Now, this is way 20 years before, 20 plus, 26 maybe years before YouTube. Uh, and this compilation video survived all this time, you know, this, you know, would just get you know, oh, you, you might like this thing, so I dub it for you on VHS. Robert might like it, so you dub it for him on VHS. Uh-huh. It even aired on public television. <laughs> There's a show called... I guess, the, was it bleeped? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I haven't been able to find the copy of it that aired. I mean, maybe that's the version that we have on YouTube now. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a show called The Show With No Name out of in um, Austin, Texas, that aired just weird clips like uh, things that are somewhat unsavory sometimes, like... James, some James Brown being arrested, things like that. Or, or uh, mm. when James Brown, he was doing a talk show and he was uh, uh, oh, on he, drugs he, or yes, something. He, was in a, he seemed to be in an altered state. Right, oh, things yeah. like that. Yeah. That, you know, we're all 
there's tons and tons of them on YouTube now. Yeah, um, like um, I think we've we've talked before about everything is terrible is um, is is a, a, a show on you. Well, it's a, it's a YouTube channel and it goes beyond YouTube, but they they do a lot of this where it's uh, it's clips from films and like old like uh, like weird Christian VHS tapes and either the kind of stuff that would just otherwise just be just completely would just fall through the tr- the cracks of history, but uh, you know they they keep it alive so that we can, uh, you know, find pleasure in it and laugh at it. Why is it that instructional training videos make such fertile, <laughs> uh, like, uh, ephemeral media? I, you know, I'm just making a supposition, but I think maybe because they're made sort of for such a narrow audience and often with such little money, mm-hmm. uh, I can just go on to archive.org. There's, or there's a great site called the AV Geeks that just curate that kind of stuff, old industrials and educational films and PSAs. I can just get lost on the rabbit hole of that stuff. It's so, so bad and so good. Well, because I guess like if, if no skill goes into it or like just a very like small amount of skill, like that in and of itself can be amusing. But then you have an instructional video like the famous uh, Shake Hands with Danger, mm-hmm. uh, which has fantastic and just uh, 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 almost like borderline offensive, uh, 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 um, you know, uh, graphic special effects for industrial injuries taking mm. place, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's out of keeping with the very amateur um, aspects of the rest of the production. Oh, it's like the uh, the old uh, high school chemistry lab safety videos mm. that everybody oh. loves so much, which just would they had the special effects for like shoving the broken glass oh, beaker yeah. into your hand. <laughs> And so I, I think, yeah, all of that, in, in, in at least this particular definition, it's like those things all would very easily because they, you know, maybe the, because of the narrow audience or because of <laughs> maybe a bunch of different reasons n- would not stand the test of time unless mm-hmm. someone uh, only because somebody said, hey, this is different. This is this is for some reason worth saving. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting to think about, like, uh what are the the evolutionary traits in media that allow certain pieces of media to survive whereas most other pieces of ephemeral media from their time fade away? It seems like a very strong uh, criterion of selection is like ironic comedic value. Absolutely. But, but it can't but it can't be just that, right? There are other things that cause a, a piece of, you know, what you would have thought would be ephemeral media to get saved, right? I mean, like what are – there are some things I know you've talked about where you, you – uh, you talked about like old home recordings that aren't particularly funny or anything. Mm-hmm. They just have a kind of soothing sonic quality to them that you can't stop listening to. Am I right about that? Oh, sometimes they certainly are funny. But uh, yeah, I mean, I have really um, – the the very first couple of minutes of the pilot episode of this that I pitched it with and that is the first episode. It's just called Pilot mm-hmm. in, the, in the feed uh, is – it's a, about 116 seconds I think – of a, just a family recording that we don't know any of the people in. There's an Uncle Jack and there's a little girl named Gail. And uh, Does it talk about shoes? Do I remember that? Yeah. Show Uncle Jack your shoes. There's a little boy named um, Brian. And they're, it's, 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 a, it's so unique because, I mean, it, it was an actual moment in time, right? It was mm-hmm. an actual people gathered around a living room or a kitchen or something. It's not from a movie or anything. No, no, no. It's just a, it's, it's a, it, it was a reel-to-reel that this, um, this collector named Bob Purse who just for you know his own personal interest and and to share them with other people goes to giant antique sales and uh you know ephemeral sales of all kinds and buys anything that's like unlabeled or is 
you know, has an interesting description on it or it's just interesting in some way, looks old. Reel-to-reel tape specifically, other things too, acetates, uh, home-recorded 78s, oh, yeah. uh, all, all kinds of odds and ends, but specifically reel and reel to tape is what he's uh, zeroed in on. Um, and so this reel-to-reel tape, probably from the 60s, uh, thought to be recorded around Winnetka, Illinois, I guess, or yeah, Winnetka, Illinois, I think is right, because it's, because of, I guess, of where he bought it. That's uh, this, yeah, specific moment where the Uncle Jack has brought over his tape recorder mm-hmm. to this family, and the kids are going, he's trying to get kids to say their, you know, say words on it, you know, tell them about the school they go to and the friends they have, and the little girl's shy at first, but then she opens up a little bit. And then the little kid, Brian, they're get, trying to get him to kind of say some of his first words, but he, of course, won't because right. kids never do when you mm-hmm. try to put the microphone in their face and now perform <laughs> and starts chewing on the tape recorder. And it's just a little tiny tape that's not all that different than lots of lo- other, you know, tapes. But it is like this one family. It's this real moment that we just have yeah. floating around yeah, in time I think, now. I think part of the appeal of that, that clip is just how... how how honest it feels like you just mm-hmm. there's no doubting that this is a you know an echo from from the past from this actual family moment and and then at the same time it is it is kind of haunting like in a good way like that that kind of like you know nostalgic uh haunting feeling that we get when we listen to something that is either an 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 actual fragment of media history or if some or if we have something like say uh, i you know instantly think of the the music of say boards of canada that um that are able to channel that level of sonic uh, nostalgia and have the same effect on us. It's this isolated bubble of unselfconscious joy that is infectious because it doesn't feel like a performance. Yeah. Which is funny because I guess it is a performance. I mean, the very thing is that they they had the tape recorder running, but it doesn't feel like the kind of performance we're used to, the kind of like a professional performance. We were not the intended audience. Yeah. You know, it was the, the family was the intended audience and uh, and and here it has escaped them. It's kind of like a Voyager probe, right? Uh, like leaving the the solar system and being picked up by some other force. There's certainly magic in it. I mean, I and I I hear that in all kinds. I mean, the the last episode that we did of, of the seasons, the 10-part season, it's all out now. Uh, the last episode's called Taped Over, and we play family recordings from my family, my wife's family, my best friend's family, and uh, our producer and producer on uh, Ephemeral, uh, Matt Frederick, who you know from Stuff I Don't Want You to Know and mm-hmm. other things. Um, a really fascinating take. He has a his grandfather recorded his mom, Matt's mom, and and Matt's uncle uh, on a Dictabelt in 1951. Whoa. Which is incredibly early to have a home recording from because mm-hmm. recording technology was just mostly in professional settings, you know, until really the 60s when uh, reel-to-reel became much, you know, cheaper and people could afford to get them in their homes. Um and it's the same. It's it's uh, Matt's grandfather trying to get first words from his mom, and mm-hmm. mom, of course, like doesn't want to play along because she's a baby and she's not going to perform just because you put a microphone in front of her. Starts crying, <laughs> starts batting the microphone around. I uh, this last weekend, I was with my uh, my nieces and nephews from Phoenix. They were over here, and I was visiting with them. And I had this old tape recorder from the '80s, and I was showing them how to use it, and instantly, they were. You know, I can sometimes not get them to look away from a screen, you know, and uh, right. you know, they just, they have a different childhood than we had. But 
instantly. They say, you know, something on the tape recorder, they're shy, it's, they don't want to perform. I let them hit the buttons, rewind it back, see the tape has been click, hit play. And they hear themselves say, you know, hi, I'm Brooks Avid or whatever. And they're mesmerized and they don't mm. want to, they don't want to put it down. You know, it's like, you have to be careful with this. This is an old thing from the eighties. You have to, you have to give it a little bit of a, <laughs> a more grace than, you know, maybe your iPad that's, you know, got this fancy case on it. But, uh. I, I, I think that there is I think there is real magic in something like that. And, and so I don't know if it's intrinsic in the uh, analog media itself or if I'm just nostalgic for it or if it's some kind of combination of those things. But there is, there's something there that cuts across, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Now, you had a pre-existing uh, interest in all of this, of course. Um, I, I wonder, is there, is there a particular piece of, of, of ephemera that kind of, you know, inspired you to put together the show? And then is there an example of a piece of ephemera that you discovered in putting the show together that really struck a chord with you? Lots. Um, but that, that first tape, that show Uncle Jack Your Shoes, those mm-hmm. 116 seconds really are what the show is built around the whole show. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, our producer, Tristan McNeil, and I were at a bar after work one day pitching ideas back and forth because we knew we wanted to do something. And uh, I was like, well, I know this this tape, then this collector, Bob Purse, and there's something there. And so it was kind of trying to put my finger on that. I might still be working on that part of it. And then your other question is... Uh, something you discovered, like some bit of ephemera that emerged uh, that, that, that you that was new to you during the production of the series. It's been so much new to yeah. me. Um, one of the most interesting uh, has been learning about the Dumont Television Network. So the very beginning of television when it kind of gets out of his experimental phase and goes commercial, which is basically like right at the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, there's four networks, just four, four networks and, you know, that get little affiliates all over the country. And three of them are still around, ABC, NBC, CBS. And the fourth was Dumont. And <laughs> Dumont was just maybe a little bit more low budget. It was kind of punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> And just wacky stuff. I mean, early TV was really wacky because it was all live. Yeah. And they were really... Puppet f- shows and stuff. There were some puppet shows, yeah. They were, you know, figuring out a lot of the things. And some of the things that got figured out on Dumont are, are uh, you know, translate to today. I mean, they were the first network to do daytime television because radio... Oh, those other three companies were all radio companies. ABC, NBC, CBS, all radio companies had big daytime radio soap operas. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really want to cut into that business. That had been paying their bills for a long time. But Dumont was the first network that went into that daytime broadcast because, like, we don't have in, any income coming in there. And we're ready to take our color patterns down off the screen and put something on. And so, uh, you know, they had a show called OK Mother, a show for moms. <laughs> and, you, know, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, certainly couched in the gender attitudes of the time. Um, uh, that was, you know, pretty similar to something that you would see like the Today Show or something now. St- live studio audience, playing, you know, games, giving away prizes, mm-hmm. bringing on guests, and sort of just light, <laughs> goofy energy to it. Um, so, you know, to, to, to wrap up the two months, I mean, uh, they were on the, the air for just over a decade, something like 20,000 broadcasts or hours of broadcast, and I think 300 or so individual episodes have survived. 
mostly held by like individual collectors, like maybe someone who's, you know, relative worked at Dumont or, you know, the uh, uh, National Archives uh, uh, or the Museum of Television and Radio maybe has a few of them. Uh, and most of it's just gone. It's just gone because it was, there, there was no re- there really was no recording then, and it wasn't even meant to last forever. The only way that they could record it was uh, doing something, uh, making a uh, kinescope, mm-hmm. which is you take a film camera and you film the screen mm-hmm. that's playing the television. And the only reason they would do that is so they could take that film can or those film cans and send it to you know their California affiliate or something that wasn't connected to the coaxial cable, and. Uh, even those they wouldn't really save because there was no reruns back then. Right. There was no intention to reuse that. So it's just that act of curation. Someone saying, you know, either by choice or by accident, hey, I'm going to hold on to this, that we get to see any of it and kind of dip our toes into that, that moment of history. Well, you also get a sense. I mean, I wonder if you'd think like, did the creators not even think of it really as a uh, an artistic product? I mean, something that they would want to be remembered. It was something more like to fill time. I think there's a mix. And I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the inherent things in television probably. There certainly were um, artists and very creative people. I mean, Jackie Gleason got his break on Dumont, for instance. Uh, Fascinating shows. They they did a show that was um, all, it was called The Plainclothesman and all told from the, perspective of, of a detective like from his eyes like oh like point oh. of view yeah oh, wow. all so point a of camera view going all over town live or? single camera shot yeah and you see his hands and you, it's you know zoom in on a bullet hole on the wall or hold a piece of paper and take a magnifying glass and pull out a single line what and that's all live so all they'd live have to, wow they'd have to stage all of that out in advance so that they could know where to go and when well it was all live to a point uh so Almost all of it was live, but then they would play out. Uh, sometimes they would cut away to a sequence that actually was edited. It was an early example of putting editing on television because editing wasn't a thing on early television. Mm-hmm. But yeah, primarily that show was all told live. And there's one episode left, and it doesn't circulate. It's in the uh, uh, Museum of Television Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm hoping to make my way up there at some point and see it. I've just seen a yeah. little clip of it. You know, I I think back just on the the, the television from like my childhood and especially junior high, you know, where you're you're videotaping a lot of television. And I remember like painstakingly removing commercials. Uh, And then other times just, you know, you were were recording a movie after you went to bed or something. And so you just let the commercials, uh, you know, take place. And inevitably, I think I like taped over and or lost or destroyed all those tapes and 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 now I would I would love to just be able to, to like sit down and watch say uh, an an episode of Mystery Science Theater three thousand from the nineties with all the commercials yeah just so I could experience that again uh, the bumpers uh, mm-hmm. on stuff like the Sci Fi Channel you know it's like that's those little details are, are are some of the things you grow most nostalgic for you know I watched the first time I ever watched uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation was my my dad was a um, is and I think I inherit a lot of this from him. A archivist, mm-hmm. you know, tape it all, label it all. Yeah, you know, uh, and he, he still has a closet full of VHS tapes that are just sort of degrading there, <laughs> because I mean, uh, the, the 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 experience you describe of like cutting out the commercials uh, is something that I don't think your younger <laughs> listeners probably will relate to at all mm-hmm. because it's just such a it's such a relic of the past. But that was a important thing then because there was this feeling like uh, not only am i taping 
the like the television edited uh, version of Aliens, but <laughs> but I am going to preserve it forever, and so the the cut has to be flawless. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wait. So did you think? Do you do the thing where you'd stop the recording while it was recording when the commercial came on? Yeah, you pa- then, pause the yeah. recording while the commercial was on, and then unpause it when it oh, came yeah. back up. Yeah. I remember. I, I was so proud of myself that I had put together on one tape. So since it was on one tape, it must have been in the terrible low-quality extended play mode on the tapes. Oh, right. Uh, but I got the entire Star Wars trilogy <laughs> with all the commercials removed yes. from uh, from one time when it aired on you know, TNT or something like that. And uh, and I was like, this is the – I have done such good work here. And I wore that tape out. Yeah. Oh, God, that that's another thing, just the wearing out of the tape, like the, the, the quality – one of my favorite films, still one of my favorite films, but one of my favorite films growing up was uh, was Jim Henson's Labyrinth. Oh, mm. yeah. And our copy, we watched it so many times that it it was like damaged and we had to get it repaired. I, I didn't even know how that was a thing, but we took the tape. <laughs> wow. Somebody repaired it and it just sound warped forever. But <laughs> now when I watch uh, like a Labyrinth off of a streaming service or something or off of a DVD, it's just not the same it. because it's not warped and weird like the audio quality I grew used to. Uh, so in in the ephemera that you've looked at in the show, like how much is the the decay and the, how much is it about the like the errors and the quality? Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm an audio I'm an audiophile. I'm a total audio geek. I mean, specifically for like lo-fi mm-hmm. stuff, uh, I've always collected old toy tape recorders and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, the artifacts. That stuff is a gold mine for a sound designer. Yeah. I mean, just if you can find cracks and records and skips and things and warps and sounds jumping and leaping and uh, I love all that stuff. Well, <laughs> this comes back to something that uh, we've talked about on the show a good bit before. Like when we talk about, uh, say, historical sites of interest, you know, like an ancient temple or something like that that is deteriorating due to the elements or all, the, all that. Or like um, should you restore things like that? Uh, mm-hmm. Or sh- or if, you know, the modern world has come to know uh, an ancient temple in its partially deteriorated and dilapidated state, should you just allow it to continue deteriorating? Or should you try to freeze it as it was at a certain point in time and say, OK, all the deterioration up to this point will allow, but deterioration after that we want to prevent? Or uh, I-, I can't remember if we uh, I said uh, allowing to deteriorate or restoring, but it seems like. In any case, you're no matter which choice you make, you're like exerting your will on 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 the form it takes. And the same thing happens with media totally. Like, I mean, media changes over time. It collects artifacts. It collects changes. It collects glitches. Um, and I wonder. Well, one thing I wonder, I guess, is are we losing that quality in the digital world? Hmm. It's. Sorry, is that a no, totally no, no, no. terrible tangent? Well, there was, I'm yeah, sorry. There's just no. There's just a lot there. Uh, losing in the digital world. I mean, the safe answer is yes, because yeah. we're losing most things in the digital. Well, world. Well, no, I just mean like uh, I mean obviously there's like a huge thing where like um, there there's so much great ephemera from the ancient world. You know, mm-hmm. the, like a huge part of 
how we know about the past is from like capturing bits of ephemera and interesting things like, you know, when you get a copy of an ancient manuscript that's a thousand years old, you might not even know what the original text in the manuscript was because it's got things written in the margins right. on it. Yeah. And you don't know if that's supposed to be part of the text or, or if uh, that was what's that like, called when they write the uh, per- perpendicularly over the other text? Palimpsest? Yeah, yeah. Palimpsest. Yeah. yeah, we have an yeah. older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so like – and and they didn't realize at the time that like, you know, whatever monk in, you know, Prague or wherever, like didn't know that his copy of this thing would be the only the copy, copy. Yeah. <laughs> would be the only one that future generations have. And so like they wouldn't be able to tell if the notes in the margins were supposed to be part of the text or his own thoughts about the text or whatever. And uh, and like you never know, really. You never know if like the, the copy that you're holding of something is going to end up being the copy of reference for future generations or if it's just going to fade and be destroyed like most other things are. The digital world, it seems kind of different because like copies are made at scale perfectly all over the place. And I wonder if we're kind of losing some of that magic because of it. I mean, it's 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 twofold at least, right? Uh, there is a way in which something phys- physical, analog, is much more concrete. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see the lifespan of it. You can say, "Oh, my!" The, I can see the yellowing pages of this book, but I can still flip through them. As opposed to like, if a zero and a one get flipped in the binary code, that thing's gone. Uh, you know, if it's uploaded in some cloud service that gets hacked, it's gone. Uh, uh, so there's a way in which analog things, I hate to say permanent because I don't think anything is permanent particularly. I think right. everything has transients at a different scale. Mm, it's but all ephemera. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, how, that's how you start feeling if you look at it too much, at least me. Um, but there's a way that that material thing feels a lot like it has more longevity to me than the digital thing, which is maybe contrary to the way that, uh, you know, I saw it before, that it's easiest to see it. I mean, I tell you, one of the, one of the great things about more and more things being digitized, because not everything is digitized, far from it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but like this show where we do, I don't know, I've never counted, but like 150, 200 cues an episode of different sound bites and pieces of, weird old movies and little audio clips and all things from all over the place would not, it would be next to impossible or very, very difficult in um, an analog time where I'm like, I have wax cylinders in there, all mm-hmm. kinds of, all kinds of media that, you know, imagine the library that we'd have to have here in the iHeart offices for us to pull something like this off. But I can, you know, it can just be, you know, a dude sitting at his desk going to archive.org uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, various other places. Uh, so, I, th- <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think that's pretty amazing. I'd love to, you know, I was just, when, it, when you were saying, oh, the monk didn't know that this would be the one copy, I was thinking, what if Joe's perfect copy of the Star Wars trilogy was the one yeah. copy that we had of that? <laughs> no, I think about that kind of thing sometimes. But, I mean, I, I think that would be unlikely now that there are so many digital copies mm-hmm. and they're all over the place. But, uh, yeah, you You should never upload I mean, your copy to YouTube. Okay. I mean, maybe doing it, you know, because... Well, no, another great example to go to, to go even to Star Wars is, uh, and this combines with the thing you were talking about, like a ephemeral TV broadcast. When you watch the Star Wars holiday special, I assume you've seen it. I have. Yeah. I have. Thank, thanks, Dad. <laughs> the Star Wars holiday special 
is that, you know, Star Wars is the biggest movie in the world. Uh, you know, it's the, the, the biggest media sensation ever. And then they're like, well, let's do a TV special. But the TV special is just phoned in. And you almost get the sense oh, that it's not, like. Oh, not all of it is phoned in. Oh, it's, no, well, no, no, not the animated the, short. Yeah, the maybe. animated short that introduced uh, Boba Fett to the world is fabulous. Oh, that's right. It has yeah, this, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's okay. like this French animation style. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, brilliant. yeah. No, no, you're right about that. But I mean, like the main part of it, like the actors are staring at the floor. They're just kind <laughs> yeah. of waiting for I it mean, to be over. I mean, it's basically a Star Wars themed variety show. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's great fun to watch now for all these great ephemeral qualities and to see the old commercials and yeah, all that. that but that's one of the great things. Uh, like even the version you get through Riff Tracks right. uh, is uh, it, 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 can, it retains the commercials. Yes. That's part of the joy of it. And, but they have to specify which one because, like, there, there weren't many recordings of it available. They never officially distributed it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Lucasfilm wasn't like, here, come buy the Star Wars holiday special. You had to get it from a copy made from some version that somebody taped off of TV in, like, Minnesota or somewhere. And, uh, and I think there were a few versions in circulation, but I don't know if those people thought that, like, their version they were taping off of TV with the local commercials they were seeing would be like the – would be the version that ends up being, you know, on riff tracks that, you know, decades later people all around the world would be watching and laughing at. I was going to say that with uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, Mm -hmm. the way that I first saw it was all taped from uh, Michigan – television, whatever Michigan station it was running on. Uh-huh. In every ad break, they had the newscast, the local Detroit newscast every time. So I would, you know, hear whatever was going on in Detroit in the 80s uh, every time they would cut to commercial. Uh, so I guess, yeah, I, I, I definitely developed a love for that early on. That's in the Star Wars Holiday Special, too, where they've got the the throws, like, teasing the later local news things. What do they keep saying? Like, fighting the Frizzies at 11. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that part. This is a thing about, like, uh, bad hair days or something. Huh. I guess they're going to have an expert come on. Well, you know, let's let's bring it back to uh, to Ephemeral, though. You have, a, you have brought a clip with us. Uh, it's almost like this is the Tonight Show, and you are our <laughs> guest. And uh, so, would you like to set up uh, this clip for our listeners? Sure. So, this is um, professor of English and uh, Material Culture Studies at the University of Delaware. I introduced her earlier, Sarah Wasserman. She's basically, I think of her as the ephemera teacher. She's writing a book called The Death of Things. Yeah, it's all about ephemera. You know, I don't, I don't want to oversimplify her thesis, but the idea of it is that telling stories about ephemera and telling stories that involve ephemera does more than just showing you ephemera. It, it, it helps fill in the gaps and do more work to transport you back to that place or time or whatever thing that, you know, is, is lost now. Uh, so she, in her book, I think she writes about like the Great Gatsby. She references that in here and, uh, and uh, a book like um, Il Doctro's World's Fair, books that uh, pieces of fiction, specifically she's writing about fiction coming from an English uh, perspective, um, how works of fiction can use ephemera and intertwine them into their stories uh, uh, to help transport you in time mm-hmm. and space. Yeah, I think that's enough of a setup. Let's listen. Ephemera, I think, are especially moving because they seem to have their own life cycle. They're made, they're born, they enter circulation, they live, and then they die. We think of things, we think of matter as being the opposite of mortal. We think of it as being enduring. We think of it as being stable and inert. And ephemera have this kind of time scale, this temporal dimension that makes them seem mortal, like us. 
I think that's part of the reason that authors find them meaningful. They can become proxy stand-ins for humans or nations or communities. To make that more concrete, take an example. The 1939 New York World's Fair World of tomorrow. was actually built on the Valley of Ashes, as Fitzgerald calls it, in The Great Gatsby. Gateway to the $155 million wonderland. They transform what is basically a dump into this bright, shining, gleaming future city. And everyone goes. I mean, really everyone. In a way that we can't comprehend today. Everyone goes. From far and near come countless visitors. By every mode of travel, every means of transportation, they arrive to view the marvels of the greatest exposition in history. You go and you say, oh, this is the world of tomorrow. This is the world as it could be. There are all kinds of problems with the vision that gets staged. I mean, racial problems, nationalistic problems, colonial issues, all sorts of things. But in that particular instance, people knew that it wouldn't be there. The fair was a temporary installation, like a 1,200-acre carnival set up in Queens. It was open for two seasons, from April to October, and closed permanently in 1940, as most of the participating countries sank into another world war. That experience, knowing that it's going to be gone, feels exhilarating but melancholic for a lot of people. And so the souvenir craze, you know, the souvenir boom is huge around that fair because people want to take something with them so that when the fair is gone, when they're no longer there, but also the buildings are gone, they have something to remember it by. The Parisphere and the Trilon were the two iconic buildings, and they get sort of put on everything. The 700-foot Trilon rises above all else, and the circling helicline that leads into the Parisphere's exhibit Democracy is a pathway to the future. One of my favorite souvenirs is after you came out of Futurama, which was General Motors' vision, sort of model city of the future, you would get a little button that says, I have seen the future. Sensational is the Futurama that projects you into 1960, the Highways and Horizons show. You know that you have this item, this object, that's going to commemorate this event. It almost feels like it's shoring up against that feeling of mortality. Susan Stewart talks about the souvenir as an object that you need when an event is no longer repeatable. So if you go to your Ariana Grande concert, you want the ticket stub because you're probably not going to go to another Ariana Grande show. or You're certainly not going to go to the one in 2019 Philadelphia. And so you need an object because it's not repeatable. Many ephemera are doing that work. They're kind of saying, I was there. I saw this thing. It's gone now but I save it. And that allows me to project myself into the future, to project myself into the past, to stave off that encounter with death that might be implicitly happening. Listen to the rest of this episode and the full first season of Ephemeral, now. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more at ephemeral.show.
All right. Well, while this is fresh on everybody's mind, can you uh, just just tell listeners where they can find uh, if, Ephemeral and uh, and also what the, the homepage is? It's ephemeral.show. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to spell it, ephemeral, just Google it. It's easy to find. I had someone write me a review that was five stars, but they told me they could not spell it. They had to Google it. But I appreciated that. I appreciated <laughs> that they did that extra work. But it's not, it's not too hard, you know, uh, to, to, to find. And, you know, it's on all the social media things. Podcasts available anywhere. You can do it on the iHeartRadio app or Apple or Stitcher or whatever thing. If you go to the website, there's like, you know, some images and some links and a little bit more information. Uh, but, yeah, easy to find. All the episodes are out now. And uh, and are our future episodes planned? Do you have some ideas uh, kicking around? I'm just gonna go ahead and say yes. We're in work. Uh, works on the second season right now, so we're technically off season right now. But we've already released uh, one bonus episode, which is the full length interview with our lovely producer Matt Frederick about that old uh, uh, family recording, and lots lots of other things in between now and then. And second season, and hopefully not all that long. It took us about 18 months to do the first season, but mm-hmm. we had a lot to figure out, and there was a lot of other stuff going on. So hopefully not quite that long, but it could be. Well, I hope not. Uh, it's it's a really fantastic show. What I've heard of it, I absolutely adore, and I can't wait to finish listening. Oh, well, thank you, Joe. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's it's a breath of fresh air compared to a lot of, of podcasts out there. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I mean, honestly, I mean, there's, 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 there's a disturbing world we're living in, and there are a lot of shows that, that by necessity and sometimes very bravely deal with the disturbing aspects of, of our reality. Uh, but, but your show has a, you know, it's, it's such a, a more comforting feel to it. You know, I can, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm settling into like a nice warm glass of milk when I listen to your show. Well, it's not all rainbows. I mean, there's some, there's some darker aspects of uh, human history in there too. Yeah. But hopefully, yeah, they're, you know, it's, you can listen to it with your kids. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's not, uh, it's not, you know, dirty or anything. Yeah, I listened to the first episode uh, with my son in the car, and uh, and he was digging it too, you know, oh, nice. because he can, he's identifying with, like, oh, this is a family. I'm listening to a family, uh, you know, talk about shoes. Yeah, that shoes <laughs> tape is definitely a yeah. hot cup of tea. Yeah. It's a good one, man. I, I love that one, yeah. Uh, before we close things out, uh, or even consider closing things out, though, uh, let's talk about William Castle because because uh, Joe, we were talking about this a little before the the podcast, but Joe and I did an episode about the Tingler. I love the Tingler, and yeah, and and so I'm just happy to have somebody in here who uh, is a fan of the film. My parents instilled in me a real love for just creature feature B movies, uh, and you know specifically like the work of the wonderful Ed Wood, but mm-hmm. all kinds of other things. And mi- the original Mystery Science 3000, or oh, yeah. Mystery Science Theater 3000, and uh, all things like that. So, yeah, Tingler. What, uh, Vincent Price? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Vincent Price, uh, yeah, directed by w- William Castle. And just a, yeah, just a really wonderful, <laughs> wonderful film uh, in its own right. You know, I mean, it just has such a weird premise. Uh, and then the the gimmick, the 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 William Castle gimmick of the vibrating uh, uh, theater seats. Yeah, I would have loved to have. I don't think I've you know short of something like 3D. I don't know that I've ever really been to a movie, a theatrical release that had a gimmick as part of it. Yeah. Uh, Pokemon, they gave away cards. I went and saw the Pokemon movie when that came out. Oh, really? Oh, they yeah. gave away cards. There's certainly some giveaway things that I went to specifically as a kid, you know, but. That's not like something where, you know, there's a a f- 
4D element or, you know, some sort of thing that happened in the theater. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever gotten to experience that with a theatrical release. What was it uh, that the Scream films postulated was that the, the, the new gimmick in movie theaters would be releasing an actual murderer into the movie theater <laughs> when it's a horror movie? Well, I mean, there's so many things they could have done with different films. Like, take Titanic. They could have misted the audience with salt water during the final scenes. Like, nice, cold salt water. That would Mm -hmm. have been interesting. Now, I have seen Rocky Horror here in Atlanta at the Plaza. And they do, you know, there's some... Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of fun shenanigans that take place. And that's pretty great. I mean, that's... That in in it... I I have... I, I love Rocky R and uh, you know for a number of reasons and and I'm I'm perfectly happy to watch it again and again just straight up without any uh, theatrical shenanigans but like that is kind of like the 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 pre Mystery Science Theater 3000 uh, riffing tradition right there and uh, and it continues to be like this this cool kind of uh, this kind of like counterculture experience for the movie going experience that that people can tar- partake of especially like younger uh, people. Uh, so, uh, I, yeah, I'm glad that it, Atlanta is a place where one can still find that. I do think folks like William Castle, you know, I think he was aware of the sort of, you know, the crowd that he was going for, the mm. the sort of work he was doing. But also, you know, I, I, I feel exuberance from him in some of the, in, in, in the way that he works, you know, like we're, we are pushing a medium forward, like we're trying Weird things, you yeah. know, and in, in the effort in the effort of like dr- you know driving ticket sales, right? Well, one thing I will say about the Tingler is that it is um, it is not a dull movie. I mean, oh. it, it is fun and full of energy. I mean, he he was somebody who remembered that movies are supposed to be fun. Mm. Uh, there there are a lot of people making movies that I mean, obviously not all movies are supposed to be fun. Some movies are very serious, so they ask challenging questions and all that. But, but like, I see trailers all the the time for movies but, that just do not look fun yeah, at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you know, monster movies. Generally monster movies are supposed to be fun. Right. Uh, and and he remembered that. I think he was aware of that. Even you know, uh, even schlockier directors, uh, R- Roger Corman, I think, was aware mm-hmm. that monster movies are supposed to be fun primarily. Uh, so you know, he could make Attack of the Crab Monsters, and it's like sixty-two minutes long or whatever, and it's <laughs> <laughs> it kind of a brisk pace, and it's got some googly-eyed creatures, and it doesn't get bogged down and. Uh, you know, you know, bad, depressing, bad feelings like so many horror movies do these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously being turned off horror. I think I'm. It's, it's like every. I keep seeing trailers for things, and I'm just like, that just doesn't. Maybe it's just me. But what about Mandy? Mandy, Mandy, I enjoyed, even though it's a revenge film, and revenge films aren't really my, my, my like my go-to franchise. But, but it was so funny. It was such a goofy movie. Yeah, and be. And beautiful. No? I mean, it, I, I love the I love Panos's style and the cinematography. I love the music, and oh, yeah, ultimately, I love that almost as much as I love Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is uh, I hold up as one of my my favorites. Or something like Stranger Things, like that's a monster movie. That's or monster. I, yeah, I'm sure a movie. Yeah, the, but but it's also exceedingly fun. And I, yeah, and I think that's one of the the the, the appeals of uh, the It movie that came out, the yeah. adaptation of the, <laughs> yeah. the first half of Stephen King's um, novel, is that. Yes, it was terrifying. You had all these terrifying Pennywise moments, and Pennywise was you know, fabulously brought to, to life. Uh, but yet, it found ways to have have fun with the, uh, the the children in 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 the in the in this in the movie. Like the, the, those characters were were brought alive in such a uh, you know a, a believable way. Uh, there was a Spielbergian emotionality to it. Yeah, mm. yeah, totally. 
Yeah. Is the Child's Play thing out yet? Oh, oh, the I new Child's know. Play. Yeah, it, I I'm think totally because that's just that's a tenpole one for me. Like I, de- <laughs> I watch Child's Play over. I think probably on TV, like uh-huh. the the TV edited broadcast of. But I definitely saw all of those movies, all the way at least up to Bride of. That's the one with Jennifer Tilly. Did, yeah. did Brad Dourif keep doing the voice? I don't think he's in the new one, but uh-huh. he was in like all the others. So that would be my main thing: is if Brad Dourif's not in it, then what? What's the point? It's but it's the same folks that did the it. Remake. Oh, was it? Okay. Or, uh, yeah, the It reboot. Oh, okay. Uh, well, then then I maybe I should give it a, a shot. I don't know. I, I, it's one of the, like, where I, I, not all that many things, like reboots, I feel compelled to see, like, I have to. But for whatever reason, Child's Play is one of those, just like, yeah, whatever. Like, I guess maybe because the first one wasn't, like, that amazing. Maybe it was. <laughs> I don't know. It's been a while. So it's got the mom from Seventh Heaven in it, I think. You're not wrong. <laughs> Uh, the only thing that I, I I feel also compelled to say about uh, The Tingler before we wrap it up is uh, Vincent Price's ability to say ludicrous short <laughs> lines with just poise and just really sell it, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, well, no, that's one of the best things about The Tingler actually is the frequency with which characters say the words The Tingler. <laughs> <laughs> and so Vincent Price is just constantly saying things like, what do we know about The Tingler? <laughs> and they're, they're counting off their knowledge. They're like, we've discovered that there is a Tingler inside everyone. <laughs> God, yeah. It, uh, one of the things that amazes me is that it just hasn't, it hasn't been remade. And I've never read any discussion of anyone even plotting to remake it or rebooted or what have you, despite the fact that uh, the William Castle film immediately preceding it, uh, The House on Haunted Hill, was, of course, remade. Yeah. And I, I thought a really fun uh, I, haunted house movie. And then the film immediately after it, uh, 13 Ghosts, was also oh, yeah, uh, made yeah. into a film, which was uh, uh, maybe a little less solid. I but saw that also, theatrically. The, yeah, I think I saw yeah, the movie theater yeah. as well. And it, it, was, it was fun. You know, it was a fun monster movie. Really, mul- I think that might have suffered from that sort of yeah. early MTV music video yeah. vibe too. Oh, but it's man. been a long time since I saw it. I remember a Roger Ebert's review of the 13 Ghosts remake just commenting. He says, uh, opened with like, this is certainly one of the loudest films <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I think it had that, it had some jarring cinematography in it for sure. But it also had F. Murray Abraham, so it all balances <laughs> oh, out. Yeah. Um, I, man, I could see a remake of The Tingler. It could go either way. You could get it in the hands of somebody who's a real lover, who's got the joy yeah. and all that. I, it could also be a joyless CGI slog with computer animated worms. But Ooh. I think if you like leaned into the more psychedelic aspects of the piece, I think you could make it work. Because as we discussed in uh, in our episode, like it is a Allegedly, uh, the earliest mention of LSD in a major motion picture, uh, and and I think that there there are aspects of its really wackadoodle plot that <laughs> that are uh, that are reflected by that. Um, Who could you recast for the Vincent Price role? Who? Um, what about Jeremy Irons? Ooh. No, too dry. Too dry. Yeah. Uh, Richard Jenkins. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's great in everything. Yeah. Yeah, Jenkins is solid. Um, Ian McKellen. <laughs> uh, he's probably too old at this point. Johnny Depp. No. I know he's done. T- I know, but this could be him oh, coming back, bringing it back around. You know, I, I have. I'm a little bit tired of Johnny Depp. But right. You know what he's great in is Ed Wood. Yes. He is fantastic in that movie. That was Johnny Depp and Tim Burton both in their 
in their period yeah. where they were just unstoppable. Yeah. 1994, I think, something around that. What happened to those guys? I don't think I could watch a Tim Burton movie now, but like it, Ed Wood yeah. is one of the best movies ever made. I love it. It's, it's uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why that sort of seems to be the story you see over and over in media and more specifically in Hollywood. But yeah, those they do seem to have passed their prime. But I don't know. I mean, well, how we, old is Johnny Depp? He's like in his forties. Wait, but but then again, we're asking the questions like, how could somebody lose their um, you know creative zeal and or their actual soul in Hollywood? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. uh, Hollywood is known for consuming these two uh, quantities sometimes uh, like at rapid speed. Right from the very beginning, too. Right from the very mm-hmm. beginning of Hollywood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ed Wood never lost it. No, that's not true. Ed Wood, man, that's Ed Wood. not true. He did kind of lose it. In the, like he like, drank himself to death. Yeah, I mean, there's that. There's yeah. that great like Bride of the Ener- uh, Bride of the Energy, Bride of the Monster has slash Bride of the Atom, Bride of the Atom. Well, yeah, it the changed names title. a couple of times. I think yeah. exactly. But that movie's got just fantastic. It's a rush. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's got Lobo and it's got uh, you know uh, the the whipping and oh, it, it's the great, great Bella Lugosi, the great Bella Lugosi, and uh, and even you know Plan Nine Bella Lugosi wasn't really in it but it was his last film well he's in a couple shots i guess yeah yeah yeah. or one shot maybe it's it's a few i just rewatched the whole movie and Mm -hmm. uh it is it's a few it's maybe three uh but that's still got great energy i think later on it would went on to he started making kind of like churning out porno movies Yeah. yeah there's a there's a sort of connection between um one of the reasons that tim burton cited for wanting to do the edward edward movie was his relationship with Vincent Price, mm-hmm. Tim Burton, because you know he's a big fan of Tim mm-hmm. uh, Vincent Edward Price. Scissorhands. As a kid, and uh, and then Vincent Price ended up working on like his first short, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh and yeah, a, yeah. And a, they worked on together twice, I believe. Uh, and similar to the way, similar to the relationship that Ed Wood had with Bela Lugosi. What's so? What's the next one? What's the next one in that continuum? That's who you get to play. Uh, Vincent Price in the reboot. Some young filmmaker befriends Tom Atkins. Okay. <laughs> He's the like the elder statesman of horror. Uh, Tom Atkins gets a late career revival. Oh, maybe Tom Atkins can play the. Uh, the uh, the Vincent Price role in the Tingler remake. Oh, yeah, he's more rough and tumble. We need. Yeah, more, he, like, he's, he's not a Vincent Price type, yeah. but you could recast the the character could become more of a kind of like Coors drinking kind of scientist. <laughs> <laughs> more of a Rouse da- Dowerian. Yeah. Wait, Rouse Dower. Rouse Dowerian. Rouse Dowerian hero. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that would uh, okay. If it's yeah, I'm on board for that. As long as it gets remade, I'm I'm on board. I I hope that they. Vibrate the seats in the theaters. Oh, yes. I hope that makes a comeback. I, w- I want to see more gimmicks like that in the theater. I feel like they need to do it, that they want me to show up and go through all the whole rigmarole to come in and see the film. Why uh, else would you? Yeah. You know, well, we all have giant flat screens at home and yeah. everything on demand. Then again, I wonder, maybe what we need are more intermissions or those specialized intermissions, like William Castle used one of these, where you're supposed to you take an intermission right before the climax of the film to decide if you've got what it takes. And if you don't, you can go ahead and get a refund and leave. <laughs> or there was a werewolf film. Uh, the werewolf break, yeah. Yeah, we had the werewolf break where you had to decide who is the werewolf. Well, we're going to have a werewolf break so the entire audience can collectively discuss it and place bets on who's going to be the werewolf. Like, well, I mean, we just need more of that. What movie was that? I think I watched it. 
on your suggestion. Yeah, it has a great cast in it. Um, is it the one that takes place at like the mansion where all the people yes. gather on like an island or something? Yeah, uh, okay. what's the name? Charles Gray is in it, uh, who would go on to play Mycroft Holmes and play Blowfield at one point. Oh, and is oh, in Rocky yeah. Horror Picture Show. They're making Mud the, Pies 007. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, and also uh, a young, uh, what's his name, that played uh, Dumbledore was in it. Richard Harris? No, not Richard Harris. The other one, the main Dumbledore. Oh. Michael Gambon. That's who I'm thinking of. Oh. Yeah, I believe he's in it as well. We got really far afield, didn't we? <laughs> no, I mean, that's some pretty ephemeral stuff that you're talking about there. Human uh. life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it is, man. Yeah. No. I mean, that's that's uh, that's one of the things I think that makes it so special. I mean, you know, uh, there's a great... Matt puts it really, really, really nicely in that interview talking about you pull that tape recorder out of the closet and you put the tape in and you hit play on it and you hear the heads of the tape cassette start spinning and you hear a voice from the grave come, you know, and mm-hmm. say hello to you. We just found in my family, we just found a tape recording of my, uh, my dad's dad passed away when I was nine months old. I had never heard his voice until... Uh, my aunt Jennifer found this tape for the last for the season finale of the ephemeral episode. She found it like two days before the episode came out, and we cut it in. And I had never heard uh, my grandfather's voice before. I started something just like, "Hi, folks!" <laughs> A ghost out of nowhere. So I mean, yeah, the 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 fact that you know these whatever they are tape cassettes or uh, you know weird old industrial films or all kinds of ephemera, uh, you know, get saved for one reason or another. Uh, it's. I think it's about as close as you can get to real time travel. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are people sending you ephemeral yet? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. What's the best thing you've gotten? What's the best thing I've gotten? You know, someone just wrote to me and told me that their parents both worked for the Dumont Network, and that um, at least one of them was hired by Alan B. Dumont, the founder of the company himself. So that was pretty cool. Uh, oh neat. But I mean, it's all good. I like I like it all. A lot of people have told me amazing stories about, um, you know, family tapes of theirs, or uh, you know, a ephem- ephemera that was significant in their family. And I think the broader cultural stuff I think is al- is always good and is 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 easy to make into big episodes. But I'm really fascinated by the sort of individual stories that people are like, yeah, I made these kind of like goofy fake shows on tape cassette, <laughs> like with my brother when I was a kid. Um, you know, the stuff that's not professionally made, yeah. uh, the stuff that's a little harder to get through and could maybe use, you know, some kind of editor <laughs> to get through and, <laughs> and, and help, you know, bring it to life a little bit. That's, that's the, the stuff that I, uh, get really, really excited about. Okay. So it looks like we got to wrap up there, but, uh, Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. We are so excited about ephemeral. Uh, what I've heard of it is so good. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And I, uh, I, I'm so excited for all you listeners out there to go subscribe to Ephemeral wherever you get your podcasts. And w- what else should they do? Is that it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's enough. I mean, you know, if, if you feel so inclined, uh, writing one of those little reviews, giving it some stars, that stuff actually really does make a big difference on our end. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, uh, the powers that be see things like that and, and like that and say, hey, Maybe you should do more of these. So if you feel so inclined, I've heard that they're good to binge. Uh, I don't, you know, you can binge them or not binge them. You can listen to them out of order. You could really do whatever you want. The trailer, I will say, makes kind of an 11th episode. It's about eight minutes long, but it is sort of a, stands on its own as an episode too. So, uh, yeah, they're all there. 
I would recommend playing these episodes on a speaker and recording them with a microphone <laughs> into an 8-track player and then leaving those tapes out in the world for people to find. We had some crazy ideas about different ways to do, like, could we get, make a self-destructing tape of the demo and send it to an executive or something like that? <laughs> that, that sounds safe. Yeah. <laughs> Sending a bomb, yeah, okay. Oh, God. <laughs> Oops. Uh, all right, well, yeah, definitely check it out. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find them all. And, indeed, if you want to help out this show as well, if you want to help out Invention, the other show that Joe and I put together, uh, just make sure that you rate and review those shows uh, wherever and whenever you have the opportunity to do so. Huge thanks to our producers, Seth Nicholas Johnson and Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, suggest a topic for the future or just say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.